0: Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website
1: www.thecritic.co.uk to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week, the latest podcast series from The Critic. In this first of three podcasts to mark the coming presidential election, Professor Jeremy Black, author of Fighting for America and Altered States, talks to the critic's political editor, Graham Stewart, about where power lay in the period between the United States achieving independence and the outbreak of the Civil War in 1861. If we look back at the creation of the Presidency of the United States, back to the 1780s, 1789, when George Washington became the first President, what was the uh, state of play there in terms of the powers that were ceded and the political culture that led to the creation of this development?
0: Well let's start with the political culture I think the key point here is that the new state was, was a part of the British world it had to address issues that um, Britain had addressed but without the Uh, A system of hereditary monarchy it could draw on republican examples but there were different republican examples Venice for example or the Dutch Republic and some of them seemed more attractive than others some of them seemed more successful than others I mean Venice by the 1780s was regarded as a you know terrible political failure and in fact was to become extinct in 1797 and indeed it's worth bearing in mind that far from republics seeming to be the future um Republics as a whole uh, did very badly in the 1780s, 1790s and 1800s, uh, culminating, of course, with the end of the new French Revolutionary Republic when Napoleon uh, succeeded it. Mm -hmm. So there are the problems about working out things against a background in which there isn't the kind of clarity that might appear in hindsight, I mean, it's very easy to talk about the nostrums of balanced government, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and to make reference to uh, major 18th century intellectual figures such as Montesquieu. Uh, but the reality was that uh, new constitution-making uh, was a precarious process. And, you know, if you're looking for other instances uh, in the period, uh, you can see the overthrow of the um the dutch system in um 1787 when the orangists return on basis on the back of prussian um bayonets invasion Uh, you can see the precarious nature of geneva in the 1780s etc etc poland gets partitioned out of existence in 1797 sorry 1795 um so what you've actually got is a situation in which it isn't clear what to do and then on top of that you have the um additional problem that whereas as it were continuous conflict and a powerful army can be the basis of constitution-making, however unsuccessful and short-term, as you will see in some of the Latin American countries over the following 60 years, as you're to see in Haiti, for example, as well. Um, In the case of the new American state, the center uh, is weak uh, militarily. I mean, it is able to send troops to suppress... Shays' Rebellion and the Whiskey Rebellion, but it's essentially weak. um, And it also faces the problem that America, or the new state, is a federation. And uh, what might work in terms of one area isn't necessarily going to work in terms of another area, and how to hold the federation together is unclear. I can remember years ago, I was reading the manuscripts of the um, uh, French Chargé d'affaires in in America in 1790, and he was Sort of reporting back that he was certain that America would split into three. He thought it would be the North, the South, and Trans Appalachia. And the notion of a of a partition was very very well established. And as you may know, there were in fact uh, separatist schemes in Louisiana soon after America. Uh, Gained power there in 1803 through the Louisiana Purchase. And a number of prominent figures, I mean, obviously, Aaron Burr is one, James Wilkinson, the general down there is another one, were involved in um, separatist schemes. So I think what I would say is rather than imagining that these people have a sort of free hand to do as they want and that therefore we can, from that, look to the present day, Uh, one should instead think that constitution-making is often a product of the interaction of long-term assumptions and short-term crisis and expediency. And I would actually argue that United States isn't unique in that. You can see the same process in 20th century Russia or China. Um, and also, of course, we're not talking as uh, we you know we're doing the deep history at the moment. But I would argue that that theme could be traced out subsequently if you're thinking about. The way in which, uh, as it were, a new set of political practices uh, have to be developed to cope with reconstruction after the Civil War. If you're thinking about the new set of political practices that have to be developed or they feel have to be developed uh, due to the Depression, World War II and the Cold War, you can see this interaction at all stages
1: well i 'm very interested in a, a point you made uh, a moment ago, which was uh, you know, we, we tend to think of the uh, American system as very uh, modern at its time, but but really it was building on systems of republicanism that that, that had broadly failed and, and most famously uh, from where we 're sitting you know, the, the failure of the the Commonwealth and, and cromwell 's republic um, how greatly do you think that these failures, uh, perhaps particularly the the British example, um, played on the the minds of of the founding fathers, and did they consciously feel that that the role of the presidency would be one that would evolve over time, and so they they factored that in, or did they feel they were creating a system which was for the ages? Um,
0: There was a, a very strong sense of failure, which in part draws, I mean, not just on the argument to do with going back to the uh, interregnum, um, 1649 to 1660, but also draws back on radical Whig thought of the early 18th century, the notion that there is an inherent corruptibility about political institutions. And that notion uh, draws on a number of causes, both political and also religious, of course, the idea also of an innate sinfulness, but also an innate corruptibility. That's very important in British political discourse of the 18th century. Uh, It's uh, it's also, therefore, part of the American world. And you can see that very strongly in the Democratic-Republicans, Jeffersonians, and their critique or their opposition to Alexander Hamilton. And they argue that Hamilton's determination to try and uh, produce state institutions most famously a national bank um, are, are inherently going to lead to failure now on top of that and you know i don't want to blow my own trumpet but i wrote a very big book fighting for america the struggle for mastery in north america and another one crisis of empire britain and america in the 18th century and in both of those but particularly the former I draw attention to the degree to which you and I are talking about America, but there is no sense of constancy about the political shaping of the state that is being formed. So that if you think about it, um, whereas we are to know that Europe in effect goes on to an extended period of, civil war between 1792 and 1815 um, and that the European powers are not going to be able to restore their authority in the new world and that attempts to to do so, for example, the French in Haiti uh, are failures. That was not a knowledge that was uh, open to the politicians of the new state. Um, So they had to consider, you've still got Still, they're sharing North America, not just with their view of whatever we might call Native Americans, you know, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but more particularly with Britain. Um, uh, they're sharing it with Spain, and they're sharing it with France. And, um, you know, Louisiana moves back and forwards. Um, now, that situation is profoundly disturbing. It's made more disturbing by the sense that these powers, particularly the British, will ally with Native Americans and more disturbing by the sense that these powers will ally with separatist Americans. So that there is the idea that you can just engage in some pleasant constitution forming, and if it goes wrong, okay, that's a pity, but we'll be able to write it. They have no such luxury at all. Now, going back to another sense of, you asked specifically about the president, there is also a concern that there is a natural tendency in monarchical systems to, as it were, move towards autocracy. Now, as you know, there are a number of monarchs or monarchical figures in the 18th century who are elective. Uh, One can think of the Holy Roman Empire, one one emperor, one can think obviously of the Pope. Uh, There are a number of them who are really, um, as it were, honorific. One can think of the Doge in Venice. There are a number of them, one could think of the elected king in Poland, or the hereditary um, so quasi-hereditary stadtholders in the, in the United Provinces, the Dutch Republic, uh, in the individual provinces thereof, who could be seen as potentially striving for more power, and obviously you have the example and instance of Oliver Cromwell, but much more recently for the Americans, they have their portrayal of George the Third. Now, it's say, Uh, It's, in fact, an an inaccurate portrayal, but this idea that somebody comes along, uh, takes a constitution, and tries to distort it for constitution, for autocratic terms, and ends, that is the um, thesis, if you like, of the Declaration of Independence. So it's not surprising that when, um, within 20 years, you're trying to bed down a new set of constitutional practices, there are concerns about what is to happen. And that then takes us to the next point, which is the inherent tension in monarchy. I mean, you could argue that the presidential system, as it lasts to the present day, is is an elective monarch. Now, Um, If you're looking at monarchy, you obviously have the hereditary systems, such as we have in Britain, um, and hereditary systems have advantages and disadvantages. The prime advantage is they give you a relatively clear succession. The prime disadvantage is that it's not always clear that you get uh, merit um, or necessary merit uh, in the succession. If you're looking at um, other forms of uh, monarchy, you get what you might call meritocratic monarchy. Now, by use of the term meritocratic, I'm not implying the people involved are necessarily pleasant. I'm just implying that they had the merit or ability to seize or gain power. Now, that sense, you can see classically for the early American period is obviously with Napoleon, um, who becomes first consul in 1799 and then makes himself emperor. He That essentially rests on his merit, but it is an inherently unstable system, Um, not not only because he fails in the end, but because the legitimacy element is, is absent. You have as an alternative the idea of, of, it, of as it were, an elected meritocrat, which is, you know, an elected system is the notion that you're getting a meritocrat. You're not just endorsing something that has happened through hereditary means. And on the whole, in the United States, although there are exceptions, one can think of the Adamses, one can think of the Bushes, a cynic might say Hillary Clinton vis-à-vis uh, Bill Clinton, um, but on the whole, the Americans have not gone in for the hereditary 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 principle in the presidency. So it has been a matter of the individual president trying uh, uh, in order to gain power to persuade people that he so far will hopefully at some stage be a she um, has the ability uh, to offer themselves and then there is a relatively clear constitutional set of formulations which they are then supposed to conform to that of course has worked but it's fair to say that in other states it hasn't worked in other states presidents have become tyrants um, and uh, and you know, uh, but then of course, um, I mean, there are no there are no uh, set constitutional rules that are going to stop that.
1: And I wonder, as uh, you speak, I'm wondering about the role of, of state governors and how their power. Uh, was affected by that of the Presidency. Is, is, can you say that the more powerful Presidents became, and this is a very long process, but uh, that, that that led to a, a diminution in, in the importance of governors or really for, throughout the 19th century should we be saying or seeing state governors as in most cases really having the power that, that affects the lives of the people living in their state?
0: Well that again is an excellent question. Let's start the state governor in practical terms i mean there are there are other elements to it but in practical terms is the continuation of the colonial governors that you see in british uh, colonies and those governors had differing authority depending upon the constitution of the individual states, and you know, what kind of colony it was, whether it was a proprietary colony, etc., etc., etc. So one of the things to bear in mind about the American Revolution is that it's not just a revolution about um, federal power, power at the level of the country as a whole, but it's also a revolution in the nature and practices of state power, and in particular the Uh, Governors are, as it were, put under the authority and laws of the locality, the locality being uh, that particular state, um, which in most cases means that their power is less than when they were the representative of a different sovereign or distant sovereign or a proprietor and therefore in many senses had an adversarial relationship with the local or locals, but an adversarial relationship in which they might be able to call, for example, on the resources of Britain, including its military resources. So that situation is very different Um, during uh, the American history. I don't want to push it too far. I mean, you you cannot, as you may know, during the Civil War um, there is a degree to which um, the authority of the localities, the individual states are abused at the behest of um, particularly the Union, which after all is fighting a, a a war and therefore is not particularly keen to hear what its political opponents in the North have to say, uh, whether they're governors or not. Um, insofar as the authority of the governors after independence is concerned, an important element was their role in calling out um, militia forces. And that is a significant role because that means that in practical terms they are a key agent in uh, in um, opposition to uh, safety uh, vis vis um, hostiles, which in this case primarily means um, local um, native Americans <clears throat> so they do have a role um, and indeed it's interesting to see in you know in recent controversies for example in you know in portland maine the tension between the relationship of the federal government to as it sees it keep the peace and the question about the role of uh, state or municipal governments in trying to do so. Again, that's not exactly a new issue, but an issue that's become uh, much more significant uh, now, and, you know, potentially will be more significant in the future. So, yeah, I would say that, uh, uh, that the level of the federal government in most matters prior to the 1930s, with the exception of the Civil War uh, and with the exception of the South during Reconstruction, that that the federal government had, relatively speaking, fewer powers and less authority than has been the situation since. And that that meant, therefore, that governors were often key figures in their particular um, states those so much rested on their re- relationship with the legislature and so much rested on which particular interests or parts of the state they were they were as it were um, you know drawing their power from because you know you need hardly be told that just as today uh, Pennsylvania is an amalgam of differing political uh, entities you know pittsburgh and philadelphia being very different to the middle of the state and it's a very large area well so you wouldn't be surprised to hear that in an age before the railway let alone the motor car uh, let alone the aircraft or telephones or whatever the there was a need even further To, as it were, delegate or accept that power and authority were delegated and therefore the governor himself, and it always was a him, the governor himself had to accept that uh, um, his writ only ran so far.
1: And is that a relationship which is in any way comparable to uh, colonial governors in you know, perhaps a British or Dutch empire, uh, 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 elected in a different way rather than being appointed? But you, a lot of them had, a lot of the governors had local uh, legislative assemblies, which they interacted with and would get you know, occasional messages from the package boat from London, from, uh, from, uh, you know, with, with orders from the central government, but were largely left to their own device. Is that analogy helpful or is it uh, it unhelpful?
0: That's a really interesting question, Graham, about the extent to which their power and authority was similar to that of colonial governors. What I would suggest is roughly like this, that during the colonial period, and I would say the same is true of French colonial governors and Dutch colonial governors, less so, in fact, to a degree of Spanish ones, because some of the Spanish ones were in the interior of Mexico City, most obviously, But in the case of the British ones, for example, the key situation was what is happening in the port cities. So for the British, the key elements are Boston or Providence, Rhode Island, New York, uh, Williamsburg, uh, Charleston, and say for Jamaica, Kingston, and so on and so forth. Uh, For the Dutch, for example, you're concerned about Batavia, we would call it Jakarta or Cape Town. What actually is happening, you know, 100 miles inland, is can be important if it's going to produce a bigger crisis. Let's say the Cherokee War, War of 1760 for South Carolina. But uh, if it's not going to produce that crisis, you're not particularly bothered. I mean, it's not, it's, you know, you know that your authority is only going to work so far, you've only got so many people uh, who, as it were, are under your, are part of whatever we would call your bureaucracy. Now, I think there's a slightly different position once you move to independence because the interior in many of these places, first of all, that the the greatest population growth and the center of population uh, moves away from the coasts. so that's very important. Um, uh, Many economic activities and transport uh, uh, changes from the 1820s onwards, the Erie Canal, for example, the beginnings of the railways take uh, a lot of economic interest to the other side of the Appalachians, and therefore you have to consider a broader area of authority and power. But having said that, the extent to which governors would, you know, if you were in a Big. Let You know, let's take North Carolina. North Carolina from the outer banks to, say, Asheville or Boone is a very long way today, let alone worrying about how long it would have been um, in 1810. Uh, and so, therefore, the extent to which the governor might have had a sway over us or a scan, a panoptic ability to see what is going on, I wouldn't push it too far.
1: I see. And let, let's return for a moment to the the powers of the president itself and the extent to which the, the occupant made the role his own. I mean, one thinks of the very important and, and uh, impressive figures who are amongst the first presidents, that first generation of presidents uh, after independence. But then there seems to be a, a, a bit of a lull whilst you have, uh, after Andrew Jackson, you, you get some more forgettable presidents until... You don't the, think
0: Buchanan is a very man to conjure with? Or well, like he's President a man to conjure or... with. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I'm not disagreeing yeah, with you.
1: But, you know, kind of, you know, Zachary Taylor and so on, uh, um, they're a bit second division.
0: Well, first of all, One of the great problems they did was they appointed generals. And although, you know, I mean, Jackson was a general, of course, but on the whole, generals were pretty hopeless when they came up to the complexity of trying to get something done as opposed to sounding off a bit. Um, But, um, you know, they were also facing the problem, which you can see, for example, as well in Brazil in the 1830s and 40s or in Mexico or in Argentina. The problem that the federal principle is very much uh, at variance with powerful uh, sectional differences. Now, as we know, in the United States, these are to resolve themselves eventually around the question of the extension of slavery, uh, but uh, that, in fact, is not the only issue that underlies these you know, relations uh, to do with pre- predominantly agrarian and more commercial states. You know, There are lots of other factors involved, but nevertheless, um, I think it's fair to say that um, you know, from the nullification crisis onwards, I think it's, or maybe if you like, from the Missouri crisis, you, you, it's getting harder and harder to run um, a cohesive politics. Now, as I said, let's put this in perspective. Much of Europe. Uh, had crises in 1821 in 1830 even more in 1848 um and as i've mentioned there are civil wars so i've already mentioned in the three most potent latin american states and for that matter if you want to throw it into the into um into the cauldron you could add haiti for example or you could add the taping rebellion in china um in the uh, 1850s and 60s so i don't think you would say that America is unique in having problems, but I think there are problems that are considerable.
1: And in a future episode, we're going to discuss some of the key extensions of, of federal power in the 20th century, from the Federal Reserve, the New Deal, the Great Society, and, and so on. But I wonder if we can tie up this segment by um, talking about foreign policy, the role of the President in foreign policy. Obviously, uh America doesn't fight uh, continental wars, European continental wars, is a deliberate policy. And the, Would you be fair to say that the Monroe Doctrine was vital in actually uh, preventing presidential powers becoming more powerful through the exertion of a very active and sustained foreign policy?
0: No, I wouldn't. I'm sorry. (laughs) First of all, the Monroe Doctrine actually rested on the British Navy. It was the British Navy that ultimately was the factor that was going to discourage France from backing Spain um, in trying to reimpose its authority in in Latin America, which is what the Monroe Doctrine is about. and, of course, the Americans did engage in war. I mean, you could have been a Native American or a Mexican and you'd laugh at the idea that America was a Pacific power not trying to expand its strength. I think um, and there just simply was not the uh, the resources, the constitutional basis, um, the infrastructure, military infrastructure to have permitted conflict, let us say, with Britain. I mean, there was... Uh, Sabre rattling you know the the Oregon frontier, but you know in terms of projecting power i mean the, I mean the British made it quite clear to the Americans at that stage they were to change their views later that they did not want America to expand into Cuba for example we 're talking about mid century um, you know the British were pretty clear they didn 't like American filibusters. they hand over William Walker to the authorities in Honduras who shoot him after you know he' tried to uh, take over the place. Um, I think that's 1860, I think. Um, so, no, I don't think you've got this idea of somebody like Fillmore per- Pierce or, uh, or Buchanan as would-be figures striding the world stage like a kind of Napoleon the Third. I would free yourself from that illusion. And um, I certainly think that foreign policy, by which primarily you meant relations with Britain, Foreign policy was a matter of uh, significance, but of course, it's made much easier for the British for the Americans by the fact that the British fundamentally don't want war with America. I mean, for Britain, um, there are many other concerns. Um, you know, um, uh, India, obviously, China, um, Russia. Um, uh, by you know, in 1861, 62, as I discuss in my book, um, there had been war panics with the United States and the early stages of the Civil War. By 1863, 64, the British government's more concerned about the possibility of European war breaking out over either Poland in 63 or schleswig Holstein in 64. And um, you know, for that matter, Napoleon. You know, the standard way Americans will tell you is that you know they 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 drove Napoleon the third out of uh, Mexico because he was frightened of them, absolute rubbish. The reason that the French pulled out of Mexico was because the Prussians defeated the Austrians in 1866 and the French were aware that the European situation was collapsing from their point of view. So that in many senses, it's the unimportance of North America that helps, you know, because actually I mean, when all said and done although the British don't want to, um, you know, to uh, be completely humiliated about Oregon, who actually really can Cares in London about the Oregon question, um, or who really cares about the way that the Americans are sort of, you know, sort of uh, b- the way they're behaving in areas like the Mosquito Coast in um, in uh, Central America. So I think that that element has to be borne in mind, but there is also the element that has to be borne in mind that a fundamental, again, something the Americans don't like you talking about, um, that a fundamental factor that constrains American foreign policy in the early and middle uh, 19th century is that the Americans can't get on with each other so that if you take, for example the operations against the Seminole Indians in Florida or if you take the Mexican-American War of 1846 to 1848, those are sectional wars. A large part of the northeast which is where a lot of the money and the and the population and the manufacturing is don't want or aren't keen on that war just as of course a lot of people haven't been keen on the War of 1812 with Britain in fact the British garrison in Canada is being fed by grain supply by Americans um, and several of the states refused to allow their militia to cross state lines and take part in the war. So you've got to be aware that there is a fundamental sort of bar for the federal government which in many senses uh, arises from its sectional differences and really it's only after the civil war ends and you might, that that situation can change. Now, of course, the real, one of the most important elements in american history is in 1865 when america does have a very good army in the shape of the union army good generals in the shape of grant and sherman and a pretty good navy it's a very large navy but it's it's, a lot of it's a brown water inshore navy but it's big those forces could have been used to um, follow a process of expansion in uh, Latin America, or they could have been used to try and have a fight with the British in Canada, though they're, they're, I don't think their Navy would have done very well, but, you know, that you can just debate that. Um, and there's some good work by Howard Fuller on that subject. But the point I would say is that it's absolutely crucial that in 1865 the Americans demobilize. It's that very, very, very rapid demobilization that helps to ensure that for two decades, whilst um, the Europeans are carving up coastal Africa and then eventually the interior of Africa, whilst they're carving up more of the Pacific, at that point, the Americans are not particularly expansionist. Um, In a sense, their expansionism is being dedicated to dealing with things like, you know, Little Bighorn and so on, and the Apache. I know that's not Little Bighorn. I know it's not the Apache, it's the Sioux. But, you know, and subsequently the Apaches and so on, the Comanches and all the rest of it. Um, so that I would put it to you that the president as a kind of figure that had to think in broad terms about some international strategy both, both political and military is not really uh, what is not really there and in fact it's a role that the Americans in a way both blunder into if you want to take that viewpoint of McKinley or if you want to take that uh, different viewpoints, they come across um, uh, as a result of the collapse of the European system in the 19-teens and then again in, the, in 1940
1: Well blundering whether by Americans or Europeans is a subject we will uh, return to as we lead up to the uh, presidential elections with these podcasts and how that uh, affected the growth of federal power and that of the presidency but a fascinating discussion already uh, Professor Black and thank you very much
0: If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine
1: delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just five pounds by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.